I forgot my photo ID at home, actually my entire wallet, but I mean, I plan to come back later today after I go home and get my wallet. Coming up on Carolina Connection, a new law requiring photo ID presents challenges to Chapel Hill residents heading to the polls. Good morning, I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Savannah Gunter. Also this week, some business owners complain about Franklin Street's bike lanes. A WRAL documentary explores the racist past of Keenan Stadium's original namesake. UNC researchers find that certain Chapel Hill neighborhoods have a higher temperature than others. And students are finally starting to feel the change in seasons. Yeah, I have plenty of sweaters because you kind of have to have this. Um, you can never buy enough. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. Today is the last day of early voting in Orange County, and the polls will close at 3. Tuesday is Election Day, and voting is open from 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. This year, the voting process is changing in North Carolina. This election will be the first one since 2016 in which voters will have to present a photo ID at polls. Some voters say this will make the process more difficult. Caroline Horn reports. UNC junior Rachel Yao went to vote early at the Chapel of the Cross on Franklin Street, but was not allowed to vote. I forgot my photo ID at home, actually my entire wallet, but I mean, I plan to come back later today after I go home and get my wallet. Oh, Yao may have had a simple solution to a barrier in voting at the Chapel of the Cross voting site. Others may experience difficulties with the newly implemented photo ID requirement. For the first time since 2016, Voters who do not have a valid photo ID, such as a driver's license or passport, cannot vote. All counties are required to supply free voting cards to people who do not have a valid photo ID. Despite this provision, some are still concerned about the impacts of the new rules, such as Eric Valera, Chapel Hill Town Council candidate and chief operating officer of El Centro Hispano. We want to make sure that language access does not become a barrier to voting. And especially with all of these new instructions, we want to make sure that people understand how to vote if they're going to vote absentee, because if that's the way that they want to exercise their right to vote, that's the way that they should be able to exercise their right to vote. And we don't want um, language barriers to be on top of any other barriers um, and rules that might apply this year that hadn't applied before. Spanish instructions for absentee ballots are available and the ballots themselves are only printed in English. Absentee ballots also require a photocopy of IDs, which can also affect student voters and older populations. Elizabeth Wellsby, voter registration chair of the Orange County Democratic Party, said that voters must provide a photocopy of their ID in a special pocket within the absentee ballot envelope. Particularly with some older population, they may not have a printer in their home, they may be housebound. Um, the reason why they're voting by absentee is because they can't get to the polls and it may be problematic for them to provide a photocopy of their ID. Walsby said that students, who are now allowed to use their one cards to vote, must have physical copies of IDs and cannot use digital copies. However, while voters may have a valid ID, some may not feel comfortable presenting them. Jared Wong, a UNC sophomore who works as a civic engagement coordinator for the Carolina Union Office of Student Life and Leadership, said that the free voter cards may be beneficial to LGBTQ students 
who want to use an ID that better represents their identity. That's particularly for anyone, but also for um, LGBTQ plus students who maybe feel like their ID doesn't represent what they look like currently, or um, and they're scared like they're going to be turned away, or um, if they want a different type of ID, um, or if they don't feel like what is on the ID matches who they are. Come to vote, ma'am. Not today. Will you be voting? I sure will. Well, with this color, I hope you vote for them. Early voting in Saturday and the election is Tuesday, November 7th. Voters who do not have a valid photo ID at the polls can still vote on a provisional ballot, which could or could not be counted in the final results. In Chapel Hill, I'm Caroline Horn. Chapel Hill police say that they are still working to determine what happened on Franklin Street Tuesday night when social media posts alleged a Muslim student was attacked. A post from the Muslim Students Association said a person wearing an Israeli flag attacked the student. Chapel Hill Police spokesperson Alex Carrasquillo said investigators spoke to someone who, in his words, identified as a victim, but did not give the police their name. An earlier statement from the Chapel Hill Police Wednesday said the circumstances described in the post must not be tolerated in our community. Some downtown Chapel Hill restaurateurs say their business is down, and they're blaming bike lanes. They say the lanes on West Franklin Street, originally a pandemic-era adaptation, are making it harder for people to drive and walk downtown. Anthony DeHart reports. The west end of Franklin Street in Chapel Hill is normally a bustling hub of activity. Local businesses like Tin Cup Joe, run by Chris Jordan, work hard to create a sense of vibrancy. I'm a business owner, yes, but I'm also a business operator. I am a mom and pop of my shop. For some business owners like Jordan, however, there's less activity now than before. As the businesses on the West End continue to overcome the challenges they endured during the pandemic, there's one lasting impact they can't seem to shake. Bike lanes along West Franklin. So the bicycle lanes, we're looking at them right now. Um, I don't see any bicycles. Frankly, don't see any cars right now though either, uh, which is not what used to be the standard. Uh, we would have people driving through town all day and that is no longer the case and it appears to me that it's because of the redesign of the space, which has cut traffic capacity in half on Franklin Street alone. Jordan says the bicycle lanes are preventing people from coming to West Franklin Street. When the town created the lanes during the pandemic, it reduced the number of car lanes from five to two. Sarah Boke, the owner of Blue Dogwood Market, says the reconfiguration created a jumble of lines and lanes on the street. The bike lanes, it definitely adds to the confusion. I feel like it's been just adding to an already kind of chaotic area that has become more chaotic. John Reese, a former member of the Chapel Hill Planning Commission, says the town originally created the bike lanes as walking lanes to help businesses struggling to stay afloat when indoor dining was not allowed. And so restaurants wanted to take over more of the street, but the streets on Chapel Hill, I mean, the sidewalks aren't always wide enough to put a lot of outdoor seating. And so what the town worked out was a scheme where it, in, order to, in order to allocate more space for outdoor seating, the town took away one of the travel lanes in both directions. Um, once that was done, 
the, the transportation planner is the traffic engineer. They looked and they worked with the DLT to see if they could do bike lanes. And what we have here today is the result of that. We have these bike lanes that basically wind through Franklin Street. Reese, an avid cyclist and former president of the Bicycle Alliance of Chapel Hill, says the changes have made Franklin Street safer for pedestrians and only cause backups when traffic is already at its peak. He says the bike lanes are a step in the right direction, but recognizes that the current situation is far from perfect. We're sitting here right now, and um, I've seen, I've, I've not seen, but I think I saw one bike go by. Um, I mean, it is in the middle of the day. Um, and the traffic is very light. Most of the traffic we're seeing here is either buses or commercial vehicles. He says a big problem is that the bike lanes are not connected to other bicycle routes. This is part of an incomplete, complete streets network. And so it's not going to get heavy traffic until people have a way to get their bike here. For business owners like Jordan, the stakes are real. He says businesses like his won't be able to survive for very much longer. None of this is practical or practicable, and it's choking everything out. It's going to choke out all the life, all the culture, all the people that make Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill. Even still, Jordan isn't asking for things to go back to the way they were. Things were never perfect. Things will probably never be perfect. However, because most bicycle traffic already uses Cameron, the Greenway and the Safeways should be expanded upon but we need 40,000 people a day to be able to get to Chapel Hill in their cars because they can't afford to live here. The town is studying solutions to these problems and is doing a mobility study. Owners like Jordan are concerned these solutions may not come in time. My business is down 60% from last year. I can't eat on that. I've gone out of business six times this year. Give me a freaking break. In Chapel Hill, I'm Anthony DeHart. Football stadiums are known for bringing people together. But when their names come from racist people, it can be difficult to find unity today. That's the subject of a WRAL documentary called Ghosts in the Stadium, which aired October 25th and is now streaming on WRAL.com. Producer Kristen Severance is here with us to talk about exploring these truths. Thanks for being here, Kristen. Can you tell us what your team found out about Keenan Stadium and its name? Yes, so Keenan Stadium is name, was named after William Rand Keenan. And William Rand Keenan Sr. is from a wealthy family. You know, they owned enslaved people. He fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War. And he was part of a group of men who overthrew um, a, a black-led government in Wilmington in the late 1800s and murdered dozens of of black men in a coup and the stadium was named after him. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between William Rand Keenan and his son and if I'm not mistaken it's now the stadium is now named after his son and um, can you kind of sure. discuss that? Sure so you know the Keenans as I was walking here to do this interview I saw you know several buildings with the Keenan name they were they're a wealthy family very important benefactor here to this college. And in 1926, William Rand Keenan's senior's son, William Jr., donated a lot of money to the university and said, I want this named in honor of my father. So there's a plaque put up. Well, in 2018, this story breaks. An NBC sports writer does a story 
Daily Tar Heel does a front page story talking about who William Rankinen Sr. is and his role in, in murdering black people in the late 1800s. Well, there was this outrage. Uh, the university has to do something. And so they take one plaque down which honors William Rand Keenan Sr. and his wife. And then they put up another plaque, which is there to this day, that says, in honor of William Keenan Jr. There is nothing else there. You would never know the history. You would never know who it was named after originally. It's just a plaque that's there. Of course, we reached out to the university while we were doing this documentary and asked, are there any plans to add any signs to talk about why this change was made? And no, there, the sign that's there is there today and there's nothing changing. How would you encourage people to, who may be walking by Keenan Stadium or any building where we see a name of someone that was either racist or you know, something like that. How would you encourage people to connect this racist past to our present? You know, I think just this, doing this documentary just showed me there are these places that we go to, these beloved places, you know, in North Carolina and South Carolina, across this country, with these, with this history that no one knows. And there's a lot of talk right now um, when it comes to renaming buildings and taking down statues that were, quote, erasing history. But that, his, that history has been erased. No one knew about the Wilmington Massacre. It was not taught in schools it, it, It's real until really present day. And so I would just urge people to pause, realize there is so much we don't know, and it's really our job to learn this history and talk about it and honor the people who, you know, died on these sites and... Um, we just need to do do a better job of talking about this history. Absolutely. Um, and that was my last question. Is there anything you'd like to add? Thank you so much for talking about this. Um, you know, your generation is so much better than all the other generations. You care and you want to talk about history. And so I would just hope that universities recognize that and they don't hide from it. They don't take down a sign and just go about their day. They actually talk about and teach the history because it happened, right? We talk about these things because they actually happened. And it's our job to just keep those stories alive. Thank you so much, Kristen, for coming in today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Several new programs are rolling out to address a longstanding problem food insecurity among college students. UNC leaders say Carolina Dining Services is gearing up to start some new initiatives. Meanwhile, several campus organizations already have things in place, including NCPIRG, the Carolina Cupboard, and Campus Y. Carolina Connections' W.H. Hayes talked to some of them. According to a 2016 study of Chapel Hill students, a little over one in five deal with food insecurity. On top of classwork and studying for exams, these students also have to worry about where they will find their next meal. However, UNC finds itself lush with organizations that work to fight this. One is the North Carolina Public Interest Research Group. 
a program for donating meal swipes, which are the credits UNC students purchase to get meals from the dining halls, is an appealing idea to Raya Pokala, the co-coordinator of the group. Well, some schools, the way they implement it is that students can donate back their meal swipes and the value of that meal swipe, such as the monetary value, um, the campus will donate a percentage of it to an on-campus food pantry, for example. But others, they let students donate their meal swipes back to the dining services, and then the dining services redistribute it to students who need the meal swipes. Pukala states that the foundation for the program exists and that Carolina Dining Services, which runs the dining halls, have made some steps toward its implementation. There's nothing official yet, but this doesn't mean other campus programs to fight food insecurity don't exist. Shayla Zwingman is a shift lead at the Carolina Cupboard, a food pantry in the basement of Avery Residence Hall. She says the food pantry provides food for students without reliable transportation. I mean, tuition and everything have been on the increase, so it's uh, definitely been harder for some students to access um, nutritious meals, uh, particularly on campus, because there's not a lot of uh, places around here that you can get free food from, and a lot of times accessibility is an issue, as a lot of students, particularly those that are food insecure, don't have access to transportation to go and reach a food bank or other location. So we wanted to create like a central place that they could come and get food reliably. This isn't the only food pantry on campus. Most of the others are for students in professional programs, such as nursing, but a new one recently opened up for all students in the Campus Y. Karina Vazudeva, the co-president of the Campus Y, explains the purpose. We just wanted to add another option for people. We know that the Carolina Cupboard has been really impactful and really preeminent, um, and it's a little bit farther off um, into campus. And so we just wanted to have another place for people to be able to get food, especially because food insecurity, especially with college students, um, is a huge issue. And I know something that affects a lot of students at UNC. It's hard for students struggling with food insecurity, but Vazudeva says that the university's awareness of the issue is on the rise as more organizations seek to address the issue. Should a student find themselves food insecure, these organizations would be more than happy to help. In Chapel Hill, I'm WHA's. What's a girl to do, lying on my bed, staring into the blue, unrequited, terrifying... You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Savannah Gunter. And I'm Henry Taylor. Long-term exposure to hot weather can have negative health impacts. As it turns out, some specific parts of cities are much hotter than others, sometimes by up to 6 degrees Fahrenheit on average. Shui Wang is a data scientist with UNC's data-driven EnviroLab, a group that has been working to create heat maps of urban areas. She joins me to discuss new funding the EnviroLab received from NASA and what their research shows about urban heat. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So the data-driven EnviroLab has been doing work with uh, heat mapping, specifically urban heat mapping. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what that work was like prior to receiving a grant from NASA? Yeah, sure. So actually, our group did a tremendous work related to uh, heat mapping, specifically in the town of Chapel Hill. We're looking to 
the uh, urban heat from five neighborhoods in Chapel Hill, and we created the continuous heat map of the whole town. What was the process of applying for a grant from NASA like? Uh, we heard this uh, this this uh, grant open for apl- application back in twenty twenty. Uh, that was like a long process for sure, and we glad finally we got the the funding from them. So, what kind of work will you specifically be doing now that uh, the funding has been expanded for your project? So, uh, as a data scientist from our team, I will be supporting uh, all kinds of data analysis, data extraction, especially my background is from the remote sensing, uh, data science, and also environment science area. So what leads to the uneven distribution of heat across urban areas? A lot of factors. To be noted that from our Chapel Hill study, uh, when we examined five neighborhoods, including uh, the center of Chapel Hill, Franklin Street, and the, the Meadow Mount community in that area, we see that Franklin Street apparently has the highest temperature among all other neighborhoods, and apparently it is, uh, we think, it that highly associated with the uh, amount of build-up area or urban uh, impervious surface. And comparing to the Meadow Mount, that neighborhood, they have a more like natural area or vegetation coverage. So I think those different land cover features, especially vegetation, may um, shape the temperature at a local scale. So besides planting vegetation, is there anything else that cities can do to try to reduce heat across the board? Yes. So actually, I uh, read an article and news from the city of Raleigh. They did a pilot project in trying to address the heat uh, and the uh, uh, urban heat island issue in their uh, area. So they, I think what they do for a pilot area, they painted the whole road into light color. They wanted to see if the light color can reflect more heat rather than absorb it. So that could uh, essentially help in the neighborhood or the area to remain a relatively cooler temperature compared to you know, the uh, black fast food or black surface. All right. That was Shui Wang with the Data-Driven Lab here at UNC. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Now turning to sports. We're joined by Carolina Connections' Kinsley Brady and the Daily Tar Heels sports managing editor, Lucas Tome, to talk about the upcoming UNC men's and women's basketball seasons. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, and welcome back, Lucas. Yeah, it's great to be back. Okay, so basketball season tips off next week. What are we thinking about our Tar Heel squads? Yeah, this is this is a really interesting season, um, particularly for the men's teams. But both the men and the women have um, lots of questions that are going to be answered in the early stages of the season. The men come in at number 19 in the preseason AP poll, and they're bringing in five transfers and two first-year players. The women are bringing in eight new faces. They have five freshmen and three transfers. Both of these teams have a whole new look to them. So you mentioned that both Tar Heel teams have um, a different look to their roster. One transfer that sticks out to me is transfer from Notre Dame, Cormac Ryan, who in his senior season had career highs and assists, blocks, and steals. With the new additions on top of Armando and RJ coming back, what are the key players for this men's team, especially non-conference playing against teams like Tennessee, UConn, and Kentucky? 
Yeah, as you mentioned, Cormac Ryan, I think, is going to be one of the key pieces to this year's team. On the court, he's a great shooter. He has length. He has size. He has a really fiery personality. He loves to compete. Um, and that's something that both Hubert Davis and his teammates have been talking about, you know, just witnessing in the postseason. So I would expect Cormac Ryan to start at the wing position this year um, and really be a sort of knockdown shooter, tenacious defender, um, sort of all over the court sort of guy. Um, going off on the women's side of things, you have Deja Kelly, who's coming back preseason All-ACC in 2022-2023, All-American Honorable Mention, All-ACC First Team, and led the team in scoring. And then other key pieces that did return. And then adding in um, the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. What do you think this team is looking to get after their run last year in the postseason? Yeah, so I think you're going to... Con- uh- sort of continue to see Deja Kelly and Alyssa Usby be the core of this team offensively and Usby defensively. Um, But as you mentioned, Lexi Donarski, she's a transfer from Iowa State, is a guard um, that can, she's a spot-up shooter. um, And as you mentioned, one Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. She is really great at just smothering uh, opponents on defense And she's going to be providing the sort of defensive element from the guard position that I think has been lacking with this team. And that's going to be big uh, later on in the season um, when it's do or die situations and you really just need to get a stop. Thank you, Lucas. Of course. Thanks for having me. That was Kensley Braddy and the Daily Tar Heels sports managing editor, Lucas Tomei. Autumn's cold weather has finally arrived in Chapel Hill. UNC students are bundling up drinking hot drinks, and enjoying the beauty of fall colors. Carolina Connection's Sophia Cassini reports. There's a rustle and crunch of leaves underfoot. They're green, long gone. The temperature throughout the week and even day fluctuates. Just a week ago, temperatures reached 85 degrees, a stark contrast to this week's average temperature, which was a chilly 55 degrees. The season change calls for habit changes as the days get shorter and the weather gets colder. The quad is now nearly empty as the weather has turned. At 2 o'clock Thursday, there were five people sitting on the grass as others rushed to get inside. Sophomore management and society and environmental studies major Stella Turner basked in the sun wearing a patterned sweater and leaning against her backpack as she played with the leaves. Yeah, I have plenty of sweaters because you kind of have to have those. Um, You can never buy enough. This is actually my warmest sweater because I had an 8 a.m. this morning, so I was walking in the dark and it was 28 degrees. So I put on my warmest one. This is my most fall one, too, I would say, um, to be able to bear the weather. Yeah. Starting the day in the dark can prove a challenge for some students with 8 a.m.s. Turner advises dressing warmly and bringing a hot coffee to make it more bearable. The employees of Meantime Coffee, a student-owned and run business located on UNC's campus, say they have noticed a change in order trends now that fall has rolled around. Ice drinks are being replaced with hot drinks, says employee Kyle Daniels, a sophomore in environmental science and economics major. The most popular drink of the week? Um, usually our specials for the week, so this one it's a dirty chai with vanilla. Sure enough, two students who had just picked up their hot chai stood nearby. One of the students, sophomore Jay Davis, an applied mathematics major, said today you could really tell it was fall. I think it was crazy like how fast the leaves kind of changed and started to fall, and then especially the weather and stuff was a big indication. But I just feel like 
it's just this atmosphere, like socially, that just makes me want to wear sweaters. I don't know. Sitting on a bench outside, scrolling on her phone, leaf blowers blowing in the background, Daryl Payton, a sophomore studying health policy, was bundled up for what she says is the first time in the season. So it is the first day that I've had to pull out the coat. I tried to go out yesterday without the coat. I was just in a sweater and a crew neck over top of it, but it really wasn't enough. It was like ice water was being poured down my body. So today I did have to pull out the coat to enjoy myself. While not everyone may appreciate the outdoors when the cold rolls around, many students agreed that fall on campus is beautiful. Yeah, I would say my favorite place to be during fall on campus is Haynes Art Center, like up towards Franklin. They have like these trees lining the paths, like lining the path between the art center and another building, and they turn like completely yellow, and it's so beautiful. And then when the leaves fall, it's like a yellow path. It's so cool. Regardless if fall ranks number one or number four in your rankings of the seasons, students like Turner recommend you let fall run its course and indulge in all the exciting parts of the season, like family time, spice drinks and foods, and of course the leaves turning, so that you can get the most out of this time of the year. In Chapel Hill, this is Sophia Cazzini. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Kevin Paris. I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Savannah Gunter. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and X at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.